think we should start. Hello, um, my name's Claire Hemmings uh, and I'm director of the LSE Gender Institute. I'd like to welcome you to uh, the second lecture in our Gendering the Social Sciences public lecture series. The series is co-sponsored by Stickard, <laughs> which stands for Suntory and Toyota International Centres for Economics and Related Disciplines. I love saying that, um, and aims to showcase the series, that is, uh, the importance of interdisciplinary gendered approaches to social science scholarship in a transnational frame. The next event, uh, it will be on the 11th of March, same time, 6.30, and also uh, in, here in the Hong Kong Theatre, and uh, then we'll be inviting uh, Professor Ratna Kapoor, from the Geneva School of Diplomacy and International Relations, the Centre for Feminist Legal Research in New Delhi. And she'll be talking about liberal rights and challenges to feminisms in uh, South Asia. So you're all uh, very uh, welcome and invited to that also. Uh, but today, uh, we're delighted to welcome Professor Lauren Ballant, who is the George Pullman Professor in the English Department at the University of Chicago. Uh, I, I'm just going to uh, remind you of some of her major works rather than go through her whole bibliography. Uh, and those uh, include The Anatomy of National Fantasy, Hawthorne, Utopia and Everyday Life from 1991. The Queen of America Goes to Washington City, Essays on Sex and Citizenship from 1997, which is, uh, well, I think that's still my personal favourite. Uh, and her recently published book, The Female Complaint, The Unfinished Business of Sentimentality in American Culture, which has just come out in 2008. Uh, she's also um, co-editor of Armonica Ourselves, The Clinton Affair and the National Interest, uh, which she edited with Lisa Duggan, and uh, of Compassion, uh, which came out in 2004. So as these titles suggest, uh, Professor Ballant is a consistently interdisciplinary scholar concerned with social, political, affective and representational intersections that comprise everyday lives and experiences. And one of the reasons we wanted to invite uh, Professor Ballant was, was because uh, my experience of reading her is that she's a truly, rather than what I think of as randomly, interdisciplinary scholar, that she's, she's interdisciplinary as a matter of ethics, I think. <laughs> Um, in particular, she's interested in how we come to be subjects in the 21st century, how experiences of love, lust and misery bear on formal and informal regimes of citizenship. And in her work on affect, Professor Ballant is at the forefront of thinking about both the generation and manipulation of individual and collective affects for pro projects of nationalist belonging but also, and particularly more recently, on how our effective lives generate and sustain a belief in the promise of the good life that would otherwise need to be dismissed. And I just wanted to add here that she's one of the few scholars I've read recently um, who has uh, made me weep. I don't know if that's... <coughs> so in terms of affective exchanges... <laughs> 
today, and in line with these developments, Professor Belamp will speak to the title, After the Good Life, in which she extends these themes by reading with two films of Lauren Cantet, Human Resources and Time Out. Uh, and after Professor Balant's talk, I'll introduce Dr. Sadie Waring of the Gender Institute, who'll give a brief response to the paper and then invite questions. And then after that, you're all invited to join us for a drink in the senior common room. Uh, so thank you, and I'll pass you over to Professor Balant. Uh, I, I promised a few years ago that I wouldn't write anything else that someone said made them weep because they're, uh, you, know, you know that's not really my aim but 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 uh, a really good friend of mine last week also phoned me up and said I, I just couldn't bear to finish your piece because it was so sad and I, you know I think I'm just going to have to start working on exuberance uh, in the meantime so first of all I'm, I'm so grateful for you all coming and I'd like to give you my email address now not because I don't have enough friends but uh, because sometimes people are shy uh, or they think of a question later, and this paper is on its last round of talks before it becomes a thing I can't revise anymore. And so if you feel like helping me, then you could. Uh, my email address is elberland at aol.com. And, so, and, and, and my audiences previously have been very generous toward me. I mean, sometimes they just do it to keep you know, me from being humiliated in public, but mostly you know, people have an idea and a thought they want to track, and, and it's been very, I've been very grateful to them. So if you, if, if you don't uh, feel like saying anything to me in person, um, or you can't, or we run out of time, Especially if I keep say, talking like this, I won't get through the paper. Okay, so, and I'd like to thank Claire and Hazel and Marie at the Gender Institute for their unbelievable patience with me, um, just trying to organize this trip. And, and I'd also like to tell you a little bit about the, the project that this paper comes from. Uh, the project that this paper comes from is a book called Cruel Optimism, which is why everyone cries when they read the articles in it. And I thought I would tell you what cruel optimism is so that uh, you will see what this paper is a case of, because I'm really interested in how exemplarity gets produced. And each of the pieces in this book tries to enter a scene of cruel optimism and, uh, from a different class standpoint, especially, but also different national locations. And so a relation of cruel optimism is a relation that uh, when, when you're brought to your object of attachment, that the object of attachment is itself an obstacle to the need that brought you to it in the first place. So for example, a soured love, you know, that the object of your desire can't give you what you came to it for. Or patriotism, that the nation form that you've invested a sense of justice in might actually be the blockage to the very justice that brought you to it. And so you know, some people would claim that all forms of optimism are cruel in the sense that you always invest more kinds of fantasy in your object than your object can possibly be adequate to. But, but, but I'm particularly interested in a relation of cruel optimism where the object is actually an obstacle to what magnetized you to it in the first place. And this is a project about what keeps people attached to lives that don't work. And so there's a kind of ontological, or the, maybe you could say psychoanalytic question about what keeps people attached to objects that, are, uh, that don't actually fulfill the desires that are invested in them. But it's also a political question, a question about ideology. You know, why do people stay magnetized to situations that uh, don't provide the kinds of opportunities for flourishing that engendered the feeling of optimism or the affect of optimism? in general, and, and the, the argument of the book is that all attachments are optimistic, so, so there's the kind of general structural question, and then there's the political question about what is it that makes you feel possible, and what's the relation between what makes you feel possible and what makes you impossible. 
Um, okay, so that's, that's glossing. That's all the glossing I'll give right now. Uh, and just one more thing. Um, the paper's a little long, and it's not because I'm undisciplined, but because I wanted to give you, because the paper's actually kind of the right length, but I wanted to give you um, a shot at actually seeing the films, because if you haven't seen the films, it'll be hard, you'll feel, you, you know, when there is no canon anymore, or when you work interdisciplinary, interdisciplinarily, people often say, well, I can't comment on your paper because I haven't read or seen X. But I wanted to give you a shot at actually seeing enough of X that you could say something. So uh, I hope that'll work out for all of us. Um, okay, the uh, paper has an epigraph that I like a lot, which is basically why anyone puts an epigraph on a paper, since no one ever remembers it later. And it's by Teresa de Laredes, and the epigraph is, the time for theory is always now. Paper is in three sections. Section one, always now. Situation, gesture, impasse. This paper is one of a series of case studies of the history of the present, focusing on the relation between the reproduction of life and the attrition of life in lived scenes of capitalist activity. Laurent Cantet's late 1990s assessments of French life, Resource Humaine and L'Emploi du Temps, have been extolled as aesthetic reenactments of the impact of neoliberalism on the everyday life of the formerly protected classes. Documenting the shifting up of precarity into what Giorgio Agamben has called the new planetary petty bourgeoisie, I'll call it PPB, comprised of unionized populations, entrepreneurs, the professional managerial class, and traditional small property owners, the films detail major and minute recalibrations of shifting relations among the state, the market, and how people live. They witnessed the blow to traditional props for optimism about life building that had sustained the aspirationally upwardly mobile. And they pay attention to how different people catch up to their new situation. What does it mean to propose that a spreading precarity provides the dominant structure and experience of the present moment? In what sense is it accurate to call this phenomenon a new global class, one that has recently been termed the precariat? The precarity literature, which I'm now incredibly quickly summarizing, and I'm happy to talk about more uh, in the Q&A. The precarity literature magnetizes a whole range of disparate beings to this class, from workers in regimes of immaterial labor, the historical working class, immigrants avec and sans papier, the global managerial class, neo-bohemians who go to university, live off part-time or temporary jobs, and sometimes the dull while making art, and well, everybody whose bodies and lives are saturated and frayed by capitalist forces and rhythms. This emergent taxonomy, the precariat, raises questions about to what degree precarity is an economic and political condition, a way of life, an affective atmosphere, or an existential truth about living, which is that there are no guarantees that, life, that the life one intends will or can be built. At root, precarity is a relation of land dependency, as a legal term, to be precarious means that you are renting your life, that your tenancy on your property is in someone else's hands. Yet capitalist activity always induces destabilizing scenes of productive destruction, of resources and of lives being made and unmade according to the whims of the market. But David Harvey and many others argue that neoliberal economic practices now mobilize this instability in unprecedented ways. The shrinkage of the social welfare state, increasing state banking and corporate pension insecurity, and increasingly flexible and casualized practices of contractual reciprocity between owners and workers serve the profit interests of owners of capital as unions weaken, workers demand less, 
and businesses respond more quickly to debt, credit, and consumption pressures by manipulating the everyday life of labor. Many analysts claim that the managerial classes of the industrialized West, which includes people in universities, have, in particular, been forced to enter a subjectively new historical phase. Richard Sennett and Hart and Negri, for example, shape their otherwise dissimilar analyses of contemporary capitalist subjectivity by noting the increasing corrosion of security as a condition of life for workers in the PPB. But they also claim that security is no longer much of an aspiration or taste for the classes who also have less access to it. And indeed, that this labile economic and labor environment has produced a sense of freedom and creative potential in lateral mobility for many members of the PPB who see vulnerability and risk as animating a system that can be gamed on behalf of forging a less alienated and more satisfying life. Add to this Adam Phillips' claim in equals that psychoanalysis and democratic struggle have a peculiar synergy at the present moment. Phillips argues that the central sensual experience of both equality and democracy is not knowing where one is, such that the historic mission of psychoanalysis to foster the subject's capacity to flourish under disorienting conditions should advance the claims of precarious politics, preparing the client for precarity and calling the skill for that adjustment mental health. This unlikely agreement about the conditions of the historical present amongst self-identified neoliberals, psychoanalysts, and radical democratic activists and theorists suggests, I'd argue, two qualities of contemporary precarity. One is that the precariat must be a fundamentally affective class, since the economic and political processes that put people there continue to structure inequality and antagonism and instantiate both the structure and sense of insecurity very differently across different locales, genders, races, histories of privilege, available resources, and skills. This leads to the second point, which is that in the geopolitical and aesthetic imaginary of the PPB, dramas of adaptation to precarity encapsulate the situation of the historical present. And that's really the central claim of the paper. I call the present a situation deliberately to build concepts for tracking the transactions of the elongated durée of the present moment. As we know from situation comedy, or the phrase, we have a situation here from police procedurals, a situation is a genre of living that one knows one's in, but one also has to find out about, a circumstance embedded in life, but not in one's control. When a situation unfolds, people try to maintain themselves in it until they figure out how to adjust. What makes this a situation and not just, is not just finally that the wealthy are suffering the material and sensual fragilities and unpredictability that have long been relegated to the poor and socially marginal. It is that adaptation to the adaptive imperative, the imperative toward flexibility, is producing a whole new precarious public sphere defined by debates about how to live and work in security in the present moment. Precarious bodies, in other words, are not merely demonstrating a shift in the social contract, but experiencing a dissolution of the disavowal that places insecurity elsewhere, an ever more difficult task of projection and displacement in the face of unraveling institutions and relations of social reciprocity. As the paper proceeds, I'll focus on two kinds of situation. Um, and actually, you're getting half of a long paper, so there actually is a third kind, which if you're curious, I could tell you about. Uh, but I'll focus on two kinds of situation. The impasse lived after a dramatic event of forced loss, such as a sudden death or a sudden breakup or sudden divorce. 
a dramatic event of forced loss when one no longer knows what to do, and yet, while unknowing and in shock, must adjust. Second, the impasse that happens unintentionally, a dissociation that one discovers after one has drifted away from normative, intimate, or material terms of reciprocity without an event to have given the situation a name and procedures for managing it. In both cases, impasse is the name for the space where the urgencies of livelihood are worked out all over again without assurances of better futurity while proceeding along by ways of adaptive improvisation and adjustment. People can be destroyed in the impasse or be discouraged while maintaining composure or creatively managing things, or they might refuse to adapt, becoming political or depressed or both. Add to this the increasing dissolution of security and upward mobility as justifying bargains people make for labor exploitation. This is where witnessing the details of the dissolution of capitalist optimism matter politically and shape how we imagine life in the precarious present. Section two, it's normal to be a bit nervous, resourcing men. Jean-Claude Barbier argues that the word precarité originally referred to lives mired in poverty but became attached to general conditions of employment in the 1980s when neoliberal restructuring in the guise of flexible labor was becoming a byword in corporate politics. Many have written about the consequences of this shift for the loosening and convolution of the traditional national liberal terms of social obligation in France. Barbier argues that in the French case, precarity underdescribes the variety of labor contracts that still operate in the nation, but nonetheless, the concept has become elastic describing an affective atmosphere penetrating society as a whole. What has been called the French cinematic new realism of the 1990s and after, which is also a style that's developing globally that we could talk about and maybe generate some bibliography for, that might be better called the cinema of precarity, documents this shift in precarity from limited structure to pervasive life environment by returning to the hinge between melodramatic realism associated with Hollywood cinema of the 1930s and 40s and post-war Italian neorealism, which melded bourgeois melodrama into politics and honed a reticent aesthetic to track the dissolution of what had been sustaining national, social, economic, and political bonds, leaving behind a variety of populations to be cast as waste. Precarious cinema destabilizes the neat shift from bourgeois private into a national public idiom because the story it tells about the privatization of public life and the fragility of all the institutions and spaces for the reproduction of life, intimate, public, private, national, economic, transnational, and environmental, emphasizes the present as a transitional zone. In this zone, normative forms of reciprocity are wearing out both in the world and aesthetically barring the reproduction of inherited fantasies about what it means to want to add up to something. That's the story of the good life. The ongoing crisis of institutions, economies, and fantasy in the ordinary destabilizes exemplarity itself at these moments, and the films record the loneliness of collective singularity, the impacts of affective frayage, and the tiny optimism of recuperative gestures in the middle of it all for those who can manage them. Such a relation of embodied perturbation to adaptation is what Agamben points to when he claims that, in a sentence I wish I'd had the confidence to write, by the end of the 19th century, the bourgeoisie had definitely lost its gestures. You know, who could say that about, you know, millions of humans? But anyway, that's what he says. But the important part, I think, is that he says that what film is, that early cinema especially, 
um, film registers the, the generalized catastrophe of having lost the gestures of being bound to a certain way of life by gathering up those lost gestures as a measure of what it means to be archaic. But to Agamben, the gesture is also a medial act, neither ends nor means oriented, a sign of being in the world, in the middle of the world, a sign of sociality. To elaborate, this version of the gesture is not a message. It is more formal than that, the performance of a shift that could be a disturbance, but we don't know yet. In the thick present, these films record, in which people move around absorbed in collecting the material and phantasmatic means for surviving. The cinema of precarity, therefore, attends to the proprioceptive, to bodies moving in space, performing affectively laden gestures to investigate new potential conditions of solidarity, not emerging from subjects with similar historical identities or social locations, but with similar adjustment styles to the pressures of the ongoing transitional present. Cantet's human resources is most explicit about this transition into the beyond of convention and equates the aesthetic problem with the problem of livelihood. It tells a simple exemplary microhistory of the expansion of precarity in the story of what happens between two people across two generations in one family, one factory, and one community at a recent historic moment in France. And yet the very simplicity of this story, which sees in the details of the reproduction of life, the end of the mode of production and of life, multiple terrible ironies. Cantet plants his scenario firmly in the irony I outlined at the start where radical imaginaries for the reconfiguration of work and neoliberal interests assumed a strange synergy. The film is set as a thought experiment prior to the instantiation of the French state socialist program to shorten the work week to, the th to 35 hours. This moment was marked as historic, as a collective event, because it involved state action to reshape the everyday lives of working citizens. The Trinsang was seen as necessary because so many were unemployed while others were working overtime. By subsidizing a more equal distribution and expansion of job opportunity, the socialists also made concessions to neoliberal corporate claims that labor must become more flexible and, and responsive to the rise and fall of market demand. But the 35-hour work week brought with it an increase of contract labor, a diminution in the power of unions, and a crisis in the terms of the national social contract. Kentet's film predicted all of this. And of course, that's been revised a little bit now, but only really to benefit capital. <coughs> If the collaboration of socialist and corporate interests was inauspicious in itself, the outcome of this mutual adaptation also had the world-distorting perceptual consequences that opened up this talk. The second irony involves the perverse rhetorical synergies that emerge from the marriage of the language of market risk to that of class struggle. In human resources, the language of precarity and of the threatening situation is used not only by workers whose lives and livelihoods are threatened by pressures on industry to increase production and profits, but by the managers themselves. The very first line that Rouet, the factory boss, says in human resources is, translates as, do not terrify him with our precarious situation. As predicted, at a moment of fierce contestation between the interests of workers and capital, it is now possible to claim as archaic long-standing debates about what it means for individuals and the state and the masses to claim democracy amidst structural inequality by asserting that everyone lives precarity now, everyone lives capitalism in proximity to risk, threat, and ongoing anxiety. Competing precarities morph in an instant to sound like grounds for solidarity. 
So in some sense, the melodramatic realism of human resources is right on the surface, and the precarious public sphere is just a development of capitalist democratic crisis management of long-embedded historical contradictions. It is, after all, a tale in which states manage capital not on behalf of citizens, but on behalf of profit to enjoy, be enjoyed elsewhere by a few, while maintaining the traditional manners of a liberal polis run by the presumption of good intentions on all sides and a theoretically equal distribution of sovereignty and vulnerability. What makes this situation historically specific, however, is, that, is how these struggles are displayed in a shift between older and newer idioms of sociality not only in wars of words, but according to the metric of manners. When the unions fight management in this film, for example, Madame Arnaud, a furiously direct, classically belligerent union representative, is called crazy and irrational, not only by the plant managers, but by her fellow syndicalists. She pounds the table and calls the bosses vulgar liars, and then her male colleagues say, um, what she is saying in her own way is, rephrasing her claims in the tones of management, the language of reason, trust, coolness, and dispassion. Later, when Arnaud is proved to be right, she gloats that what they had called crazy bad manners, or female bad behavior, was really just the last barrier to an appeasement that had already taken place, and condemns this apparent fact that the union men's commitment to the mannerliness of the male discourse fellowship was greater than it was to facing what was incommensurable in the interests of unions, of workers, and global capital. Human resources follows this tension in the practices and effects of loyalty in relation to social hierarchy, mainly within the family. The filmic action begins and ends on a train, but what's in transit is at home. The son, Frank, returns to Normandy from Paris to take up a management position in the same factory that his father has worked in for over three decades. Frank says that this return has enormous symbolic importance to him because the factory had run his summer camp and orchestrated his Christmases. But although Frank has lived in, in walking distance of the factory his entire life, it is only on his very first day as management that he sees his father's machine and the labor his father does on it. Frank's illiteracy in his father's machine is a deliberate outcome of familial decisions probably made before the son was sentient. Frank embodies the post-war social democratic contract to grant the working classes access to embourgeoisement. His father owns a home and makes furniture in a well-machined wood shop. His mother tends house, makes meals, says the right things, polices manners, and keeps the family flowing. His sister Sylvie works at the father's factory and has married Olivier, a paternal look-alike, who also works there. Frank's mother babysits the kids while the parents are at work. But Frank, the baby, is special. He embodies the familial investment in upward mobility. Sent away to Paris and to business school, he has been educated prior to that not to know much about his family's work. He is cultural, social, and economic capital that's been squirreled away, fussed over, not protected, not yet invested. It is therefore appropriate that he is named after money. In contrast, his parents have no names in the film's credits. Le Père and La Mère are there as human resources for Frank. In investing money, time, ignorance, and pride in their son this way, they reproduce the hierarchy of class deference whose very legitimation splinters during the film. You see this in the very first family scene where the father is so proud of my son, and you see the father over and over introducing his son to people as my son. So, and so the, what is the son's specificity in the world? The son's specificity is as a scene of fantasy projection. 
And the father is so perturbed by the son's return to Normandy that his fantasies are disturbed and he can't really approach the son. And indeed, this requires an adjustment, an adjustment at the level of manners. You're not saying hello, says the mother to the father, who hovers on the periphery of the intimate family crowd. Later, the father, more comfortable on the couch next to his son, erupts with advice about how the son can survive real work. So this is the first long clip I'm going to show you. Merci. Olivier, tiens. Ah oui, je te remercie. Tu vois l'apéro maintenant, toi Oui, c'est qui te tenir, non Ah, et puis demain, tu ramènes pas trop ta science avec le patron. Tu attends de voir ce qu'il veut, mais t'es sérieux. Oh, pour ramener ta science, ça va être difficile pour toi, non C'est abruti, je suis pour rien si tu comprends rien à ce que je t'ai dit, moi. Oh, abruti, abruti, ça va. Non, non, mais je suis sérieux, hein, parce que là, t'es plus face à un instituteur ou face à un professeur. Hein. T'es au travail, t'es plus à l'école. Hein. Et faut être sérieux. Non, mais ça, ça, je, ça je sais, t'inquiète pas, quand même, c'est pas mon premier stage. En plus, le rendez-vous euh, au siège à Paris s'est très bien passé, donc euh, a priori, il n'y a pas de problème. Oh, vous inquiétez pas, on les entraîne à des entretiens beaucoup plus coriaces que ça, hein. c'est vrai. Et puis, c'est pour un petit patron d'une petite boîte de province qui va t'intimider tout de même. Attends, petit patron, petit patron, il est ce qu'il est, mais bon, euh, on en a quand même besoin. Hein. Oh, mais c'est vrai, papa, c'est qu'un stage. Justement, ça se prépare, on n'y va pas les deux mains dans les poches. Ouais, Qu'est-ce que tu crois, attends, je ne vais pas les deux mains dans les poches Bon, voilà, t'as réussi, j'avais pas le track, tu me l'as donné, donc j'espère que t'es content. Bah, je sais pas, il me semble que c'est normal d'avoir un peu le track. Je sais pas, oui. Sûrement. On the next day, after this discussion of transitions within the normal, the film departs to an unprecedented and yet not normalized place. The atmospherics are of bodies jostling, excitement at newness, the awkwardness at the need to invent new habits of being and relating in space. By the end of the first day, we see how out of sync the father is with the new capital, the new capital that Frank represents. But Frank is also in over his head. Well-mannered, he absorbs all the kinds of ambivalence in the management offices and the production floor. But it matters that he did not learn in business school anything about the labor struggles of the 20th century. Protected by his father's archaic deferentialism and the experience of unions as a cultural rather than political force, he retains the liberal fantasy that management and unions are on the same side and slips easily into the model of precarious solidarity. Saying that he hopes that more flexible labor rules will help bosses and workers economically and will further implicate employees in company affairs, Frank expresses a desire to make the workers' forced adaptation to the 35-hour week feel like rational, critical democracy. He does not notice that when the boss says, we'll win it together, that the referent of we does not include the workers. Thus, when Frank comes in with a plan to circumvent the union and canvas workers directly about the Transinc, he thinks he enacts a twist on classic public sphere ethics. The business ought to represent what the people want. He has no clue that he's providing an alibi for decisions about downsizing that have already been made. He's not yet suspicious of the class to which he's been educated. Later, when Frank realizes that he's been used by the factory managers to justify downsizing, he becomes angry, reveals management secrets, works for the union, and helps to organize a strike. But the father is mortified by his son's political transformation. The end of the old normal produces tears like a woman's, the mother says. And later, the son cries too, though not like a woman, but a lost child. The tear is a tear, a rip, a glitch. What do they do next after the good life?
after patronage, after loving paternalism, and without clarity about what makes sacrifice and risk worth it. Frank's response is to rub his father's face in his own despair, striking out at his father at the factory, in front of his entire community, to make him face up to the new normal that the son is both contesting and on which he is insisting. Pushing his face into his father's, he tells a story of his class education as a story about the emotional pedagogies of class, whose powerful indirection he now sees as fundamental to his development as a manager. Les enfants, là, ils prennent des risques et toi, tu fais rien. Oh, t'arrêtes là un peu. Arrête. Eh hey, oh. find that very rough to watch. And I've watched it a million times. Here, what we opened with, the casual, teasing banter, bodily comfort, and paternalist expertise transmission with which the film opens, becomes exposed publicly as the old normal, associated with the paternalist capitalist social relations that accompanied the gains made by socialist and social democratic workers' movements in the mid-20th century. The father is seen as in affective cahoots with the bosses, even as their class interests have clashed. Yet it is not as though the father is special in managing work this way, or that the situation that the worker's in is unprecedented. What's new is that the father is being forced to be seen seeing his own desire to work under the radar as political. 
and to be seen seeing the political as saturating all his most intimate fantasies, gestures, and ordinary casualness. This doubling dissolves his phantasmatic legitimations for doing the work that, as another worker says, nobody wants to do. The father's flesh registers his assimilation to the public news that there is no such thing as being under the radar by way of a disturbance in his facial composure. Deleuze and Gattari's much commented on concept of faciality posits the face as a porous relay between the internal chaos of subjectivity and the external command to produce clarity and identity, an always failing barrier between what's composed and decomposed about the subject. But here it's class politics that shatters the habitus or microdisciplines of the body. The old normal was to absorb the slings and arrows of working class discipline into a mode of bodily solidity and grace in which the face said little, absorbed a lot, and provided a barrier sponge that enabled the stresses and pleasures of living on to be compartmentalized. In other words, the father was basically a kind of stolid guy who didn't say a lot and wasn't super expressive. But now his capacity to have that defense, which is also the defense of a certain privilege, a phantasmatic privilege, has been dissolved. As the strike strikes away this entire defense, Cantet registers the dissolution of the enabling alibi and the splitting off of the paternal face from the body. The father's quivering lip moves not toward composure or speech, but threatens to become out of control, to decompose. The quivering lower lip is of someone overwhelmed without a way of saving face, stuck in the impasse of the present without routines left to prop up even a lip, let alone a person. Cantet cuts to the empty factory from the father's quivering lip because there is no outside to this situation. It reminds us that disbelief can be a political emotion, but not in the usual sense, since it is not oriented toward opinion or action. Disbelief enacts, rather, a refusal or incapacity to adapt to a consensual real. It provides an emotional space-time for adjustment to a new situation. In the last scene of the film, the father has adapted. At a union picnic amidst the strike, he plays with his grandchildren with a gentle exuberance that suggests that there's nothing now but the present and whatever sweetness can be squeezed into it. And he seems at peace with that. Meanwhile, Frank seems to have inherited his father's disbelief. His young face has completely imploded, lost expression. He sits on the margins, still and plotless. Without an imaginable future or a home, on his way back to Paris without a plan, emptied out of confidence and impulsive gestures, all he has is impassivity in the impasse. It is as though all of the varieties of precarity have crept in to still his very marrow without revealing how else to live, and so he has to stop his body from transacting with anything. In the cinema of precarity, shifts in the portrayal of composure from a normative, conventional, habituated solidity to a range of animated still lifes have become a convention of representing attempts to delay admitting defeat by the devastating pain of this unfinished class transition. Section three, why should you be spared? L'emploi du temps. Cantet's attention to class-related varieties of impassivity as a coping strategy and response to neoliberal restructuring takes on a new set of fragile delicacies in his return to the situation in L'emploi du temps. L'Emploi du Temps also features a series of scenes that mark the career of proprioceptive skills that communicate changes in their case study subject's habituation in the historical present. Unlike Resource Humaine, though, no event marks the onset of the new normal. And indeed, what's striking here is that there, no manner of being mannered is disturbed in this film's narration of the fraying of a life. 
Instead, we begin and end in the middle of a story, a story about manners and drifting. L'Empreinte du Temps tells the story of Vincent, a consultant who has been released from his labor contract in the French 1990s. Vincent does not tell his family that he's been fired, though, and his opacity to his parents, wife, and children is repeated in the physical atmosphere of the film when it opens, which also means that the film transmits the historical present as a situation, a moment held in abeyance. Vincent sleeps in a car near a railroad in the passenger seat, the windscreen foggy with his breath and the heat of his body. It is a beautiful abstraction that suggests something enigmatic in the real from which our gaze is protected. Then a bus arrives and children spill out. There we go, children. Passing before a space in the glass that is not yet foggy, and one imagines that imminent to this moment is a disaster of sexual perversion or child kidnapping or a bad divorce or a suicide, an event, in other words, where a single gesture could well become an act that destroys the ordinary thoughtlessness of the present and sends us willy-nilly into a narrative of gray economies, underworlds or other worlds that no one wants to live in, at least for long. And I'll just say that that's really the structure of this film, is that you keep waiting for events to happen, and that the film is always putting you on the verge. And so, it's, so what it's, how do you live on the verge? Um, as a, and that's, I think the verge would be another way of thinking about impasse or impassivity. But that's not what happens in L'Emploi du Temps, whose English translation, time out, inverts the vernacular sense of the phrase in French, which is time schedule or just schedule. Still, the English translation gets it right too, if time is defined by capitalist productivity. It is midday and the man is not working. He's in a car, but it's not moving. When his cell phone rings, you can, I don't know if you can see here, he's on his cell phone. When his cell phone rings, there we go. Uh, and the man talks to a loved one. He says that he's between meetings, but at that point we learn that the man is double-timing his life because he's not in meetings as far as we can tell. And he's also taking a time out, not only from work, but from truth-telling to an intimate who thinks that their intimate rhythms are being supported by schedules, the rhythms of encounter that produce and reaffirm the reproduction of value each day in the managerial class. In piling on the multiple kinds of time out at the outset, the film reveals instantly that Vincent is living a secret life. A secret life is that genre of being that takes place in myriad folds of the social, protected from specific gazes that would expose to normative judgment something awry in someone's tendencies. This sense of professional shame, of the shield and poison both of normativity and the secret life, would likely have been in the mind of anyone who saw this film in France. It adapts a real case, that of the French citizen Jean-Claude Romand. Romand was a doctor who did not pass his boards, but dissimulated having done so for 18 years. Then in 1993, sensing that his secret of failure and dissembling was about to emerge, he killed his family in a rampage and unsuccessfully tried to kill himself too. So people who knew that were expecting, watching this film, expecting the entire time for uh, Vincent to come home and kill his whole family. Yet the event that we dread when the film opens in a beautiful abstraction that is interrupted by realism is not what the film offers to us now or ever. We realize later that the man did not want to be near children, but to wander like them, purposeless and unanxious. That's the film's fantasy of children. Nothing returns us to this atmosphere of rest, but the rest is not melodrama, it's disturbance. Later, Vincent glosses this opening scene in another way. He is on a car in a narrow, icy road at the edge of a mountain at night. He could be killed, and no one who knows him in his official life would know that or why he is there. In the car, he is with Jean-Michel, another middle-aged white European man clearly honed for the professional managerial class. 
By this point, Vincent is living among many more lies, many more multiple secret lives, and trying to avoid the fate of the father in human resources, the fate of losing face in front of others. Vincent has told his family that he works for the United Nations offices in Geneva, brokering the neoliberal hunger for new development opportunities in Africa. He tells his friends from college that he is brokering high interest rate bank accounts in the Russian gray economy. They invest on the basis of their historic trust in him, and he supports his family with the embezzled monies. In other words, globalization makes politically and economically imaginable what the cell phone lubricates in his intimacy, a post-normative life lived as a multiplication of normativities that seem to have arisen organically from relationships rather than from oppressive or disciplinary institutions. I say seems organic because we know that the dedication of the state to fomenting neoliberal practices of interrupted accountability and fading meritocracy is a central context for the rise of a consultancy class that contracts to have episodic dealings as opposed to having institutionally shaped long-term relationships. Jean-Michel met Vincent after overhearing him in a hotel lobby pitching the Russian bank accounts to his friends. Later he opines that Vincent was a bad method actor, clearly disinvested in the deal he was promoting. But Vincent's friends, who already trust him, do not attend too closely to the details. And for a while, Vincent prospers. When Jean-Michel confronts Vincent about the bad method acting and, 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 and really kind of says, you're a crook, aren't you, basically, we think a blackmail plot will ensue. But Jean-Michel has the honor of thieves, and as it turns out, he too lives in the gray economy via surreptitious contracts and flexible norms. For a living, Jean-Michel sells fake designer watches, serving the same class of aspirational consumers that Vincent is now tapping, people who like a good deal and who do not want to attend to the details. It turns out that 10 years ago, he was a member of the global diplomatic class, a class of civil servants whose job is to manage the political behind the scenes or under the radar. But Jean-Michel was a crook, got exposed, lost his family and his name. The underground economy is the only one left to him, and what he wants from Vincent is a partner. For one can simulate legitimacy, but one can never be one's own colleague, and it is lonely in the secret life. Jean-Michel is therefore the only person to whom Vincent tells the truth. Bon, on va arriver à la frontière. Tu vas doucement. J'adore conduire. En fait, quand j'ai commencé à bosser, c'était les moments que je préférais. Tu sais, t'es seul dans ta voiture, tu réfléchis à rien, tu fumes une cigarette en écoutant de la musique. En fait, je crois que la seule chose qui me plaisait dans mon boulot, c'était les trajets. Et tu sais, ça finit par jouer des tours. J'étais tellement bien dans ma bagnole que j'avais de plus en plus de mal à en sortir. Parfois, je faisais 200 bornes pour aller à un rendez-vous. Et au moment de prendre la bretelle, dernier moment, sans réfléchir, je filais tout droit. 
Évidemment, ça finit par franchement agacer mon patron. Encore, au, au bout du compte, ça s'est plutôt euh, pas mal passé. Tout le monde sentait que j'avais plus ma place dans la boîte, alors ils ont pas cherché à me retenir. Et du coup, j'ai pu négocier correctement mon départ. Pourquoi ça n'est pas parlé à ta femme Je sais pas. Ça m'a peut-être paru plus simple de continuer. The mutual recognition of Lost Company's spirit allows Vincent's drift away not just from being reliable, but from being intentional. In the present moment of neoliberal contingency, he discovers himself drifting and drifting off, and he doesn't know why. What does it mean to have company spirit and then to lose it? Is company spirit even an affect or emotion? Or is it a performance of citizenship that is entirely affect-based and normative, a mere ideology? Or is it deeper than that, a mode of mannerliness close to gallantry that is both instrumental and life-affirming in the way that Arlie Hochschild has suggested? A, a subplot of Time Out plays out this imperative explicitly. At one point, the family goes shopping on Vincent's stolen money, and there they run into Jeffrey, an old colleague of Vincent's, who's been leaving heated phone messages throughout the film that Vincent has not responded to. But caught in the same public leisure space, Vincent has no choice but to act the part of a friend, at least around his wife, Muriel. We learn a lot about the emotional demands and performance norms of the consultancy class in this scene. The men have worked together for 10 years. Like an old lover, Jeffrey complains, is this a joke? Weren't we really close? We ate lunch together daily for 10 years. All those late evenings, wasn't that something? Yet, at first when the men meet, they introduce their wives and their children to each other. Their closeness was the closeness of colleagues, not of friends who shared the whole range of life. But that does not mean that their thing was meaningless, though, or fake or shallow. It meant something to Jeffrey. Vincent, you were fired, and then you completely disappeared. My concern is normal. Vincent, I don't find it normal. We only work together. That means nothing now. So on the face of it, Vincent was never taken in by the ideology of managerial affect management. He complied physically to warm collegiality, but never complied affectively to the atmospheric imperative. But Vincent's relation to labor-related affectivity is quite different when he talks of work with his wife. Throughout the film, he relates to her his sense of precarity as a loss of enthusiasm. And the concept of enthusiasm is incredibly interesting. And we could talk about that more later. Uh, and other feelings. Vincent. Things aren't, go aren't going the way that I had hoped. Now, he, remember, he's pretending to have a new job, right? Things aren't going the way that I'd hoped. I knew it would take time to adapt. I didn't think it would be this hard. Muriel. You only started a few weeks ago. Doesn't it take time to get on the right track? Vincent. I get along well with my colleagues. That's not an issue. They're easy to talk to. Good atmosphere, but still perverse. That makes lying easy. I tell myself everything's fine, but that's a lie. I'm afraid I'll disappoint. Afraid of what? Afraid I'll disappoint. Afraid I won't make the grade. You had these worries before, but you always pull through. They smoke together, they speak in hushed tones, they act tenderly, and they keep the lights low. Vincent puts his head on her shoulder. She holds his head. That is how intimates act, but what does it mean? At the same time, Muriel colludes in Vincent's emotional performance, revealing a real fear that Vincent is about to give up trying, a threat that he always pretends. Throughout the film, whenever the story he tells starts to crack, she rushes to fill it up with verbal assurance and physical assurance. Maintaining intimacy in the family requires that the wife neutralize dis dissonance, fear, surprise, failure, and incoherence. The noise of manners drowns out the noise of precarity in their marriage. 
So when she finally visits Vincent in Geneva and he doesn't take her to the apartment that he claims to have purchased with his father's money but does not own there, Muriel is disappointed. But in the abandoned, unheated farmhouse he squats in, she tries very sweetly to stay in sync with him. They have what seems like good sex, and after she evaluates each of his body parts, his thighs have gotten smaller, his penis is fine, but his tits are starting to fall. When he laughingly protests her hard judgment of him, she says, mine are falling too, why should you be spared? She observes and searches him, exposing him to her verdict. But he prefers this physical exposure to her questions about his job, and in the scene's end, he has sex with her to force her searching questions to become rhetorical ones. Thus, we keep seeing Vincent protect his capacity to leave home and return. Home is at the base of a cul-de-sac, and the word impasse was invented by Voltaire, by the way, to replace the term cul-de-sac because it's obscene. The people who live with him there in cul-de-sac normativity sense that he has drifted off, is not really present. But it's easy not to dig too deeply in that because breadwinners are often frustrated and tired. If he had the money, Vincent would sustain this rhythm infinitely. The mild theatricality of intimate spaces is sustained by gestures and tones of caring that he is good at and finds satisfying. Cynically, one might say that Vincent loves tenderness because it's on the surface, it's a practice, it demands little. To him, being tender with an intimate is like being a colleague. The gesture stands in for authentic emotional depth, but does not demand it. Still, as Vincent and Muriel leave the farmhouse and she disappears momentarily into the snow, Vincent panics. Because like any lover, he needs her to be where he needs her to be, reliable and solid, not lateral or secreted like him. His anchors in the normal turn out to be necessary to him and keep him from be becoming destructive, psychotic, or emancipated. He bars the event that would splinter everything. Instead, he acts mannerly with his children, Oedipal with his parents, husbandly with his wife, doing whatever it takes to protect the privilege of drifting without entirely drifting off or going off the grid. By the end of, oh yes, before that. By the end of the film, though, Vincent has been caught out by his wife and family, and it seems as though his father has bailed him out, including finding him another job. The final scene is a job interview where the open secret of faux managerial enthusiasm permeates the room. Vincent is pale, wan, sadly smiling, pretending that he wants to be the head of a team of salespeople who have no benefits, no contract, but just the right to be associated with the shell of an institution. He is the least independent, independent contractor imaginable. In fact, the, whole, the, the phrase independent contractor ought to just leak with irony. It does not matter what the actual job is, as the form of being in labor is what counts, and not the situation of production. His incapacity to lose everything, to genuinely go off the grid toward the horizon of his negativity, is not surprising. There is nothing else for him in the impasse. No anarchist energy, no dramatic refusal, no gun and gasoline for the road. In place of being happy, he just gets one more chance at making faces in the social. The terms of reciprocity are fundamentally normative and gestural, and the times out he has taken recede like some twisted pastoral. In the impasse of the present, he is no longer driving in spirals, but in circles, in team meetings with modes of conviviality that fake optimism in the hope that eventually it will turn out to be worth it. In this sense, the film revises deferred gratification for the precarious era. It no longer involves suffering in the present for future enjoyment, but simulated, improvised enjoyment that must be scavenged now for a present beyond which there is nothing. Upward mobility has been replaced by sideways mobility. The only membrane Cantet can find between absolute psychotic making off-the-grid loss and imaginable life is the optimism of manners, composure, a formalism of feeling and of being that requires the minima of affective attention or emotional performance. 
that makes subjects associate living with keeping it to themselves, and that therefore represents the neoliberal drive to privatize all resources in a story about the privatization of emotion and a man whose face aspires to become all surface. But the question haunts, why should you be spared? Explicitly, Muriel refers to aging and death. She also refers to being seen and known, to being obligated and responsible. The story of bourgeois inauthenticity and secret lives is not limited to neoliberal time and space, though. But why should you be spared also expresses the spread of precarity in the neoliberal now as the low bar of solidarity, of belonging and reciprocity, in times of crisis ordinariness. Living amidst the breakup of modernity's secure institutions of intimacy and reciprocity, the state, the corporation, the family, liberal publics, Cantet's protagonists live the impasse of the present, shifting among a hug, a kiss, a quivering lip, and a death mask, without an imaginary for the terms in which new political claims on social resources for reciprocity should be made. But should the organizing terms be in the idiom of a new affective class, the precariat? Neoliberal interests are well served in the displacement of so many historical forms of social reciprocity onto emotional registers, especially as they dramatize the emergence of a better normative social world that does not yet exist. In this register of political emotion, though, what does it threaten to have, our, have us protest our precarity to our heart's content? This is not a rhetorical question. It goes to the heart of the tension between the affective sense of solidarity that may come from the dissolution of a collective attachment to a normative world and divergent imaginaries of the better good life that its subjects would wish to bring into being in compensation for what can only be called their profound collective material and phantasmatic loss. Thank you so much, uh, Lauren. And I'm sure people have got questions um, that they would like to ask. Um, but while you're mulling those over in your minds, I'm uh, going to introduce Dr. Sadie Waring, who is lecturer in uh, Gender, Media and Culture at the LSE Gender Institute. Dr. Waring's research is uh, in the critical analysis of literary, visual and media culture, with specific interest in representations of ageing, temporality and memory in both historical and contemporary contexts. So you can see why she's perfect to respond to uh, Lauren here. Her work is concerned with questions of the political implications of deployments of cultural understandings of time, memory and the body. She's recently completed a special issue of social text on performativities co-edited uh, with Sylvia Pasoko and her forthcoming monograph is called Age, Gender and Sexuality in Contemporary Culture. Thank you. Um, I'd like to thank Claire for um, asking me to do this. It's been, it's been a real pleasure to think about the um, important questions posed by Lauren Balance's eloquent um, and lovely paper. Um, I know that others will have questions too, so I'm going to keep this short. There is two related aspects um, of this very rich paper that I'd like to pick up on that to me seem particularly suggestive. 
The first is a general question in relation to understanding film as part of public culture and Cantet's films in particular as documenters, as we've heard, but also as producers of affects. Um, they are, um, as Lauren Belland has just said, they are sometimes very hard to watch. And I'd like to think through a little bit more about this dual role, if you like, and how that might illuminate questions of the congruence more generally between the role of critical theory and critical thinking and cinema's place in the reproduction of critiques of culture and the production of histories of the present. The second thread um, that I'd like to pick up on and that I would like to sort of worry at a little is related to the first and concerns this massively suggestive notion of the impasse the exemption from the chronological imperative uh, that Lauren Boland has identified, and to think about the ways this sheds light on this loss of an imagined futurity, which is such a crucial feature of the ability to stay held or held back in the present. So first then, thinking about film as documenter and producer of affects, Affect and film has recently been discussed in relation to taking an account, as it were, um, of the embodied audience, to questioning how and with what consequences film makes its viewers feel. It's also been frequently understood in relation to mass culture's generalised manipulative embeddedness in the reproduction of capitalism. So Hart, in Affective Labour, as part of a quite different argument, comments that the entertainment industry and the various culture industries are focused on the creation and manipulation of affects. The paper we've just heard, however, offers us a somewhat different take on this question, and it seems to me that Lauren Ballant is surely right in her understanding that film offers us a range of ways of thinking through affect, of scrutinising and reflecting on the affective dimension in the relaying of the lives of others in ways indeed consummate with the broader critical project of making strange. Elsewhere, Lauren Balland has written of aesthetic worlds that are juxtapolitical, and this seems to me a crucial phrase too in relation to accounting for what is an oppositional documentation of the present, a documentation which at once represents, but which might also be understood as producing itself affect affective states and what those affective states might be, um, apathy, empathy, or perhaps shame. So while, as we've heard, Vincent's shame and Frank's shame are the manifest content of Cantet's films, it's also the case that such affects are sometimes only precariously attached to bodies. They are, as we saw in that clip, they are transmitted through generations, for example. In another of Cantet's films, Heading South, shame is also seen in this mobile way. It's politically and differentially attached to bodies marked by their distinct relations to time, space, and capital. Heading South, in a way that I think is very um, like some of the clips that we've just seen, also mobilizes shame by producing scenes which are barely watchable in their production of an acute discomfort for the viewer. So Cantet's films, then, I think are especially interesting in relation to this ambivalent production and reproduction of affects and the politicisation of these. Perhaps counterintuitively, this works partly through their employment of a certain amount of critical distance. 
employing a formal language which draws attention to the duration of the shots, reminding audiences that they are indeed watching a film, and thus, in a kind of Brechtian sense, implicated in forming a judgment. The effective dimension of this role, though, are quite complex. Sometimes an effective response seems to come precisely from such a critical distance or withholding. The paradox, then, of how moving watching a character's refusal to break down. And again, that scene with the quivering lip is, is sort of indicative of this. The character's affect, then, is taken on, as it were, by the viewer. So this, then, is a very roundabout way of posing a question in relation to thinking through the specificity of film in the documentation and production of affects and how this might offer us an insight into the congruence of the roles of critic, critical theory, and filmmaker to produce such histories of the present. This suggests that we ask again, but perhaps in new terms, questions of public culture, of the role of film and fictional genres in elaborating upon, in stepping back, dissecting, and reconstituting the present in such a way that it can therefore be read, be understood, be seen by precisely those who are experiencing it, that is, the present. So to put it another way, if Cantet's films both document but also presumably produce affect, what then are the politics of the affects thus produced by a specifically critical cinema? What possibilities are there in the experience of watching the dissection of a dismal present and a lost future? The cultural politics of affects thus produced, be they empathy, compassion, shame, will of course then become subject to critical scrutiny. Balance work, I think, crucially allows us to think these questions through. My second, as I say, related response to the paper is intended to pick up on the generative critical qualities of this, um, this sense of the impasse. Um, and I kind of subtitled this after the good life and utopias of rest. Um, and I suppose what I'm really wanting to ask here is something about the temporalities of a livable life and its imaginary. I'm struck by the fact that political and fictional utopias have historically been understood as emerging or clustering at points of massive and unprecedented change, which may in part account for their qualities of nostalgia. The late 19th century in England, for instance, is one such moment. If utopian ideals, or optimism, have historically emerged out of a felt crisis then, is or was the good life ever actually experienced as such? Is the ambivalence that we've heard about in relation to the neoliberal present and its emergent precarious subjects not also perhaps a characteristic of the before, which only retrospectively becomes good, and anyway, as the paper makes clear, was always dependent on someone's precarity? Why, indeed, should anyone be scared, spared? So what seems to me to be thought-provoking about this paper is the ways in which it points to the specificity of the present ambivalent response to precarity and its um, concomitant lost future, wherein drifting off becomes read as almost a licensed withdrawal. Um, this drift, this impassivity, as I understand it, can be read as normatively a kind of coping strategy, but more suggestively also a calling a halt, 
a taking of time, a temporary lull, a refusal of claims, a rest. Um, and, I say, and I say this is incredibly suggestive because I think it's also always political. It's no accident that William Morris's utopian futurity, News From Nowhere, was subtitled An Epoch of Rest. And it's not rest from work, per se, but from productivity. So such a fantasy um, on a very different register is alluded to in the rendering of the situation, the moment in abeyance. And um, what sort of temporal perversion then, and this is in a good way, or at least in an ambivalent way, is enacted in this moment of rest? Utopias are of necessity temporally or spatially distant, and sometimes both, and their very vagueness is definitional. Or, as Laurent Ballant has put it elsewhere, they may be a felt condition of general belonging, an aspirational site of rest and recognition in and by a social world. Rest, then, is a key feature of the desires mobilised around imagined futurity. Significantly, the utopian resolution that Richard Dyer argued is the ideological import of popular film genres, which resolve the fundamentally in irreconcilable dilemmas of capitalism. For him, one of capitalism's felt, that is, affective disorders, is identified as exhaustion, workers' grind, alienation, and fictional popular film is understood to resolve this via an aesthetics of energy. Cantet's static pictorial compositions, often of seemingly half-empty buildings, are singularly lacking in any such ameliorating energy. Rather, the characters are quite literally worn out. Impasse, then, as Berlant rightly informs us, is a feature of reaction to intolerable loss. The term grief-stricken refers precisely to this sensation of a nauseous stillness, an unvolitional stopping, and is clearly a feature of melancholia, that production of a stasis of being stuck in the moment of loss. So there might be, then, two sides, if you like, of the utopian promise of rest, of impasse. On the one hand, impasse speaks the escape from life dominated by the schedule, the grind of capitalist productivity, a bit like having Monday off. You know. um, on the other hand, the state itself reveals the loss of futurity. The characters in Time Out are literally exhausted. Rest is understood as potential salvation here. And Vincent is desperate to offer his son this sense of rest, rest from change. His defense of himself from his son's anger at his bullshit is to urge him to think about how nothing changed for you. And this sense that nothing changes is the best that can be hoped for reveals precisely, as Lauren Berlant has so convincingly demonstrated, the limited, curtailed poverty of the imagination of the imagined good life, and more especially, its aftermath. Sure, I'll say something. So I, I kind of want to stand up, even though I feel like in solidarity with my friends down here, but if I, not that I know them, but if I, but if I stay here, then I can't see you, and that would seem better. So, so please don't think I'm We'll assume you're in solidarity. Don't feel lost. I'm not really separating myself from this. <laughs> um, that was fantastic. Uh, I guess I have two things to say. One has to do with your first interest, which is in the question of what I would call emotional hangover. 
You know, uh, I talk about this a lot in my Rosetta piece, my piece on the Dardenne brothers, which is uh, which is partly behind a lot of what you were thinking of, because I forget what the title of it is, Feeling Utopian, Feeling Normal, something like that. Anyway, uh, but I have this piece on the Dardenne brothers where I'm trying to think about um, the ways that the films just technically try to cut you off. You, they they uh, solicit an attachment to the good life that nobody could possibly in the film ever really achieve, and then they cut you off so that the people in the film can't get it, but you still have the desire for them to get it. And in so far as that happens, normativity is reproduced in the audience as a kind of emotional hangover from the film, and because you because structurally the film wants you to want what they want. These films are quite different in a sense because you don't they don't put you in the position of wanting what anyone wants. They want to put you in the position of something else. So I think it's really interesting to ask what that, what that something else is. And one thing I would say is that in Cantet's films, it's not always mimetic. That is, the audience isn't really always asked to inherit the affect of the people on the screen. Um, and one way of thinking about this is that heading south, this is a gendered division of affect. Heading south, there is no impasse. There is a, you know, there, these are people on a kind of permanent vacation who are trying desperately to fill up their life with sexual noise. And who, this is women, so abject women, uh, who um, uh, you know, are interested in the conditions of the reproduction of life. They seem to have infinite money, you know, and the racial politics of that film. You know. But he, 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 didn't, he didn't write that film, I think. So that's a, it's, it all, it's also problematic to put it in conjunction with these other things. But anyway, um, so you have acute discomfort in that film, not because somebody is about to fall apart because they've lost their phantasmatic binding to themselves, which is what I'm claiming for the two films that I talked about today, that the fantasy of my own continuity was lost when I could no, no longer have the fantasy of um, thinking that I'm going to add up to something. The people in, in, in Heading South aren't trying to add up to something. They're trying to have something right now. And in that sense, it's an absorption in the present. But you're not trying to have, you don't want their affects. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a certain sense in which the audience would always feel condescending toward their uh, desire and also a pity for the waste that happens when someone's best intelligence and creativity is taken up with uh, abjecting and self-dissipating sexuality. You know, so that's the heading south. Uh, and that was the, the least good advertisement for a film you'll ever hear, you know. But if, oh, see it, it'll be really fun. Actually, I don't think it's that great, really, the film. But anyway, but, but anyway that's its structure. Whereas what's going on in this film is I think a kind of uh, transmission of, of quietness. You know, it's a transmission of composure as a problem. Transmission of some sense of trying to figure out what bodily self-management means and how bodily self-management both keeps you in a story and separates you from, being, from having to display how overwhelmed you are by that story. And the thing I'm very interested in here is the splitting off of emotional performance from affect, because one of the claims, anyway, one of the claims of this book is that we're also experiencing the waning of genre. Now, and in my work, what genre is, is an emotional contract between viewers or readers and, and the text to have for a certain emotional experience. So you come to a romance, you expect there to be romance that you can identify with, you expect there to be obstacles in a romance that would say, oh no, it might not be a romance after all, and then you hope that it will become a romance, you know, in the classic model of what a genre is. So a genre always produces a complication in its, um, in its very performance of its conventionality. Whereas what we're showing, what I'm showing here is that in the cinema of precarity, what you see is the wearing out of a genre without knowing what else there is. And that these two films, so then I'm gonna get to your second question, so that these two films are sort of about what do you do when it's not adding up to something, 
but you're not in some kind of psychotic or abjected condition, you're still in the social. And that's what's really, so part of the argument of this book also is that trauma almost never describes anything that the word is used to, is, is applied to. And so, because, because actually these people are, you might call them traumatized, but what they're really doing is living on, is figuring out how to live in the middle of not knowing how to live. That, and that's what mostly people do. And that's why I was saying that there are these two kinds of impasse, you know, the kind where you have a sudden break but you still have to live not knowing. And then the other kind where you kind of forget how to walk and then you realize you're not walking. Or in his case, I'm, I'm working, but somehow I'm dr just driving around. And then I noticed that I was driving around. So I must have had an intention, but it wasn't really an intention I had. Anyway, so those are the kinds of things I think, thinking about the non-transmission of affect through performance, but instead having to be displaced into an atmosphere where uh, forms of composure are politically distinguished from each other is one of the things the cinema of precarity does. Another example of this is the film The Visitor, which um, uh, I'm not sure I'll recommend to you, but uh, I wasn't gonna see it because it seemed to be about some old dried out white professor who has to meet some Africans to find life again. And I've seen enough of that. You know, if a female complaint is full of things like that, I feel that I've done my duty with white liberal sentimentality. But all of, the, all of the reviews said, well, you think it's this kind of film, but actually it's more interesting than that. So I was hooked, so I went. And it is, and the reason that it's more interesting than that is because what the film really is about is the politics of the distribution of composure. Where you have people who, like undocumented immigrants, who have to not show what they're feeling in front of the police so that they don't get beat up. Whereas the composure of the elite white guy is the composure that he, that is the privilege of his position so that he doesn't have to show up in other substantial ways into his life. So thinking about, thinking about that, thinking about the ways that emotional performance and manners are actually telling us something about the problem of how else to imagine what a story, there is no narrative, right? Well, what the story of being in this moment of unraveling is like. I think so, that's, that's my response to your first question. Just a, a little to the second one. Um, one of the other tropes of this book is, is people's desire for self-interruption. That, you know, the, that, uh, the book is kind of, the book after this is going to be talking a lot about non-sovereign subjectivity, but I'm really interested in the ways that having a personality is kind of a burden, and that, and that <laughs> I don't mean mine in particular, but, uh, and that, and that, and that, and that people, people aren't really sovereign but they're called to their sovereignty every day by the demands to become intelligible to others. That is what identity demands of you. And that, and that thing, the things that we call self-medication, sex, drugs, you know, media consumption, I'm sure I can think of being in a conversation with your friends, those, form, those are forms of self-interruption where people get to coast in particular ways. And I'm really interested in the forms of self-interruption that are revealing an incapacity and the forms of self-interruption that are actually regenerating the capacity to live. And so, and my claim is that most of what we do is self-interruption. Most of what we do is not the production of more productive selfhood. So, um, but I, I also wanna say something about that. Uh, I don't think that wanting to add up to something is utopian. I think people, you know, the, the, the whole promise of capitalism is that it will all have added up, you know, and if it's not going to add up to something, you know, we have to see that the, the, entire, the entire justification for all of the forms of exhaustion that people live in order to think that their lives are not alienated spaces um, uh, actually made people think that they were living allegorically. You know, so, so I get this question every time. I'm so glad you asked it. I get every time I've given this talk, which is not that many, people say, well, isn't the good life some kind of retroactive projection? 
that doesn't that no one ever really lived. I actually think people often there are particular kind of ritual moments where people say, "See, my life added up to something." Especially if you're, rep uh, I'm gonna. I started making a face when I said this, but I don't mean to. If you're reproductive, and you start seeing your, <laughs> if you see your children at particular phases, and you think, "Look, I did this thing. Look, it added up to that. Look, I'm being promoted. Look, things are adding up." And adding up looks like having a life, and and at the end. You look back on your life and think, I lived allegorically and it worked, and I added up. So, so and 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 I don't, I, you know, I didn't mean to have a tone of voice about that. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm very moved by people's <coughs> desire to add up to something, and I don't think that's utopian. I think you know. Then, but then the question is, under the conditions that we currently live, be you know, understanding you cannot project to a future out there. But there's a, this is my claim that there's only the recent past and the near future. And that people, and that this, the, the new historical consciousness pressing itself onto people have to do with what's next and next and next. And not some sense at all that you can, that you can, you can imagine adding up later, but some sense that you can only have something happen now. So those are the kinds of, but I, I loved your comments, and those are the kinds of things I was thinking of. Questions? Other questions? Yeah, let's open up to other questions. I would love to hear some other questions, or statements, or... Really? No, yeah. Yes. Do you want to get the, do you need a mic? Um, well, I think I'll just uh, say two of the things that your paper made me want to ask. The first would be about gender, because we're here in a gender institute lecture. And um, it seems to me that there might be quite a lot to say about the relationship between either gender or sexual difference and the kinds of temporalities and impasses that your, your films and your talk were around. Yes. And my other thought is about Frenchness, because these are, after all, French films. I part thought you were saying friendship, and I'm like, oh. No, fr Frenchness. <laughs> and I, I just wondered if you'd had any thoughts about the fact that your, your, um, your objects are, are French. Right. <laughs> Um, first, so I'll go to the first, thank you so much. I'll go to the first question. Um, well, I said a little bit about it in the, in the talk. I mean, I kind of, I wanted to apologize and say it's a gender center, but I don't, gender is not the main division that I'm tracking. But, but what's there are a number of things that are, uh, for these cases, salient. One is, one has to do with um, what wives do in this, right? What wives do is they fill up the holes of, of fantasy. That's what they do. They lubricate the situation. They lubricate the family. They do the emotional labor of making things like say hello to your son, you know, come in, be in the scene of it, be there. And it's very striking in Time Out that the wife, she's just busy lying her brains out to the father because she, she knows that the, something's off in the husband's story, but she, doesn't, but she doesn't really kind of want to admit it to him or herself. But she will do anything to keep the imago of the family going. And so, and that's what women's jobs are in these two films. So the films are really tracking um, the, uh, a particular and, uh, end of, but it's not just a professional managerial class because it's also unions, you know, you know, unionized petty bourgeois uh, life, tracking the ends of, of um, a certain fantasy of being the breadwinner. You know, the person who doesn't have to be emotionally compliant because he's busy doing his job. And the question of what the man's job is in the family for parenting and what, I mean, both of these fathers are just kind of amazing in the kind of alacrity with which they give advice to their sons. And, you know, and, and that, so you do your work and you give advice. That's what men do in this, in these films. And so, 
what happens when they've lost, it turns out, the kind of phantasmatic but also material privilege for doing that. The, I don't know if, I, if this was, let's see, let me go backwards here. Oh, Hamlet, see Hamlet? <laughs> I didn't notice that until I did the, I did the stills. That you know, the, the, the uh, film is trying to say something about um, you know, bringing masculinity into real historical time. And so, that's, so these are the kinds of things I would think of for these films. Um, other films and novels in the book enter the question of gender and sexuality in, in different ways. But I thought also it was important to say about these films, about the timeout especially, that sexuality is used to drown out a crisis in the solidity of gender as a form around which ordinary life is organized and things like that. That's where I would begin anyway to do this. But again, you know, it's about af it's about affect management and the different gender divisions of labor of affect management and and you know and and uh, the ways that people prop up each other's forms of composure as a gift to them. Um, but of course, it's a, it's a gift that can be poisonous if it is ending up being the reproduction of a fantasy that has no relation to actually how people are living. That's the first question. Frenchness. I don't know if I can, you know, I tried to say what I thought about Frenchness in a way by saying historically this is the location of this film or these films um, in France and in particular, uh, well, the, uh, there are other there are other things going on in the other chapters of the book in relation to this, but you know, with the decay of the social welfare state, or with and with people really, really struggling in France actively, the way they also have in Italy, um, with wanting to demand that the state provide some kind of citizenship wage, right, some kind of citizenship insurance, so that people don't have to be destroyed by transformations in the conditions of their labor. France has really conservative, had, I mean, in the good sense of conservative, that is liberal, you know, had a lot of protections for workers that are now being slowly worn away. Um, and so that, that's the Frenchness I, I care about more than other kinds of generalization about Frenchness. But, you know, I'd be happy to add some generalizations about Frenchness if you want to tell me some, or tell me some things to pursue in this, because I think, but, you know, but it's not, it's not my field exactly. Uh, but, I, but I think for me, the, the, the biggest issue here is that the discourse of precarity that's in these films is really transnational. Um, in Europe, and uh, and is and is, but is played out with different forms of rage um, in different places. So, if this would, were an Italian film, I, I I promise it would have been a more political film. And you know, the fact that these people are actually trying to protect their experience from being politicized, and protect their recovery from the dissolution of social welfare promises from being politicized has something to do also with the French upper classes thinking that precarity was for the people on the bottom. So those are the kinds of things I would think, but I'd love to hear more. I won't answer all questions that long, I promise. If you have any, how could I, I, I would ask myself tons of things. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Do you have any examples that you'd like to? Um, well, there's a pretty easy thing to change this issue now. Um, it's about precarious lives in the most casual state. And I'm very particular which is Shiva, Rasta. It would be brassed off. Yes, yes, right, exactly. Brassed off, right, exactly. Well, um, in, I, I know you had another question, but just parenthetically, 
people always ask me, well, where are the American films? And I have a long answer to that now. Is that, was that going to be your question? Well, I was going to ask you about America. Oh, well, and so one of the things I have developed for the book is a, well, it's actually now in many, many incredibly overlong footnotes, but we'll have to put in the introduction, um, is thinking about the office in the British and American offices, because I think a lot of this happens in American office comedies, though there's a new American film called Wendy and Lucy, which I totally recommend, um, which is uh, where there are now these, all these films about animals, actually, people, we, women and their pets, The Year of the Dog and Wendy and Lucy, where you have these people basically, the only binding they have to the social is their pet. And if you've seen Umberto D, it's directly, it's directly in the tradition of Umberto D and of Italian neorealism, where the whole world has abandoned you, has no commitment to you, and so you're getting your pet to return to you as, as close as you have to the social. If your heart can bear to be broken that many times, I recommend those films. Um, but, uh, the, but, the, but the office, the office comedies have been very interesting to me because, of course, the tone of those is quite different than what we saw today. The tone of those is the situation tragedy. You know, where um, you have, in a situation comedy, somebody acts like themselves again. This is true, and uh, Shameless I actually have seen, and uh, it's true in The Office too. It's like there they are acting like themselves again, and there's a new situation, then they're acting like themselves, and you love them because they're being exactly who they are, given the contours of their personality. And in situation comedy, the world always has the generosity to accept that person again as who that crazy kind of person who they are. But in this situation tragedy, you realize they're one membrane of being, from being ejected from the social altogether. And so you're hoping that no one tells them. You know, and watching the different seasons of The Office was really interesting as David Brand becomes more and more and more close to having to admit that he isn't his allegorical self. And, and you kind of don't want to be in the room when he finds out. You know, because, it, because And this is a part of the transmission of affect to the audience of wanting to protect someone's uh, desire to be irreal, really. So, okay, no, was there another question about the states? I just wondered how the presence of Bernie's and Europe You mean like Obama-esque hope? Yeah, Obama and global capitalism. Do you have a minute? I'll tell you everything I think about that. <laughs> uh, I've been blogging. I have a blog called Superbalanced Thought, by the way. So I've, you know, said so many things about Obama this year. You should, you could read it. I don't have money to want to talk about it anymore. But, um, but, uh, I. So the last chapter of this book that I'm writing this very day um, is on silent protest and on the place of silent protest in contemporary art about the historical present. Because I'm interested in the idea of the historical present as something that imposes itself on you as a consciousness so you then have to walk around and find out the evidence for. You know, I'm really interested in this model of wandering. And the, oh, I, I meant to say to you also, the third film in this paper that I didn't talk about is The Grifters and I. Because The Grifters and I is kind of happy precarity. Like, hey, we're all wandering around, picking up garbage and teaching stuff and having in, talking to La Planche. Anyway, um, uh, I like it a lot, but you know. Um, so, 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 uh, and so, what I'm interested in is why do people in in art about that uh, silent that uses silent protest or that messes with soundtrack, why would people enter the public sphere and withhold the very thing that actually animates it, namely speech? And there are all these films in this paper and and uh, performance art pieces where people come into the social 
and are just very quiet in it or try to destroy rationality in it. And I think what this is about is about the splitting of the political from politics in the contemporary American context. And what Obama was, I mean is actually, because he's still thrilling in week two of his administration, you know, what, I mean, what, he, what, he, what he was was um, trying to solicit attachment to the political. And, and so the paper's called like On the Desire for the Political. But trying to reanimate the desire for the political is the first person in decades to not be running against politics and not saying I'm really moral and the, po the political is a degraded space. He actually loves the political. Uh, and he did these amazing things. He organized, you know, he taught like 20,000 people how to become political organizers. Now he hoped they would organize for him, but it doesn't matter. He's made a generation th of people think of themselves as doing politics for building life. So that part is amazing. But then what's the relation between the political and politics? It is often the case in left, left progressive work that the politics is demeaned while the political is upheld. So the political has, you know, kind of incredible amount of attachment oriented toward it, and then politics is the dirty thing that people are doing. So, mm -hmm. and, and, and I see this a lot in the art works that I'm tracking also, is that the question of whether you can bear to make a claim, or those people who uh, are agambanists, you know, uh, uh, and Nazi-ists and Negri-ists, you know, potentiality discourse. What do you do with the equation of the political with the release or the habitation of potentiality? And, is it, and, and my question is always, can you have a politics of imminence without making a claim? Who are you going to make a claim on? You know, do we have to rethink our relation to the state? Are we, make, are we suggesting that we can only make a claim on each other, and then isn't that exactly you know, the fantasy that the neoliberals had of shrinking the state into nothing and thinking that we had to be reduced to whatever form of communal life we could invent. I think we are in a moment of just, you know, incredible imaginative chaos around the possibility of reinventing the social vis-a-vis -vis the question of whether we can reinvest in collective institutions. So that's sort of where I am on Obama and hope. You know, I think he actually tries to solicit a, a conventional desire to politics as a place where there would be, you could see the mediations from the bottom up. But I don't know. Well, thank you. Uh, I think actually we have to oh, uh, finish. Uh, well, uh, is it a quick one, Bev? <laughs> <laughs> and a quick response? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I, following on almost in the other two questions, because I was thinking how incredibly French these films were, because <laughs> it, they kind of legitimate the bourgeois dilemmas. Um, in a way that you couldn't do in Britain because nobody's that interested in managers. So there's something very, very French about it. But then I thought it kind of follows in the tradition of making the kind of new middle-class experiences, which are highly particular to a very specific class faction, uh, almost universal. And so what I see happening here is, is, is kind of a continuation of lots of social theory, which you see in all the precarity discourses, that the is that they literally do make something incredibly particular, something in this case incredibly national, appear as if a universal discourse that everybody's suffering from, when in fact they're not. And when they have suffered from it in the past, they deal with it in very, very different ways, pleasure, utopia, whatever else, irony and humour. So it's that kind of national point and, and kind of, you know, is the bourgeois taking over again? Uh, I'll, I'll say very briefly that, right, this is a, this is two things, you know, one is it does maintain bourgeois universalism. So, but I think one of the things that this is also breaking down is exemplarity itself. I mean, what, 
what are these people examples of? The, the claim of precarious politics is that if, if, and this is true, you know, in the history of lots of progressive politics, it doesn't become a central national discourse so the privileged people start to feel it. Like sexual harassment wasn't, you know, workers were completely harassed in a million ways and invaded for centuries before, you know, in 1973, Catherine McKinnon goes into the workplace and discovers that white middle class women are also vulnerable to forms of exploitation. So then sexual harassment gets invented. So, but having said that, you know, what's the difference between, a, you know, a, a place of affiliative solidarity and a fake universal? Like, I think that your question is a little cynical in its articulation because the very powerful, and I, I don't mean that as a critique, I just as a characterization, that the, the, the very powerful points of social organization are always falsely general but they're there so that people can find a way to each other and figure out what it would mean to be in the political together. And so the precarity in this paper, you could say it isn't really precarious here or it's not the same way, but for people who are interested in precarious politics, they recognize the structural differentiation and nonetheless want to claim that the fact that everyone understands themselves to be survivalists now is actually potentially the condition for reinventing politics. And I'm worrying that question, but I don't think it's a, just a false question. Anyway, I'm very grateful to you for your attention. Thank you very much. <laughs> well,